Welcome to Julius Baer's True Connections podcast, where we hear from entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and financial experts on their views on today's world. In this first podcast, Callum Brewster talks to Jennifer Prozek, founder and CEO of Prozek Partners, about her journey as an entrepreneur and what she's learned along the way. Hi, Jen. How are you today in New York? I'm great. Thank you. Great to be speaking to you today. Jen, I speak to many entrepreneurs like yourself, and I was just thinking, I wonder if there was a particular time in your life where you dreamt about your career and where you would end up and becoming an entrepreneur. So when you think back, was there a moment in time where you actually thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to do something different. Well, I guess I always say that my father, who is very into poetry, exposed me to Robert Frost's poem early in life, and I always remembered the road left traveled. So I always knew that I was okay doing things that other people were not or things that were different. But I must say, upon graduating college in a pretty nasty recession, all I wanted was a job in my chosen profession. And unfortunately, for entry-level people, there were very few entry-level jobs in the communications field. So at that point, I just really wanted to become employed in my chosen profession. But later, I would say, after I found a position that wasn't all that I wanted at the time, it was clear to me that I had an opportunity to do something different. So I wouldn't say I dreamed about being an entrepreneur, but I would say the opportunity to become an entrepreneur became clear after a couple of years out of college. And you mentioned your father and poetry there. Was there some relationship between your father and poetry and communication? Was a a linkage? Were you fascinated by language? Sure. I mean, I think I always was. I was always a big reader. I was an English literature major in college. But it wasn't until I interned in the summers that I really understood how my natural skills were fitting for the communications field. So I always encourage people with college kids to make sure they don't just spend the summers on the beach, (laughs) that they do a number of internships in fields they think that they might be interested in because there were fields I thought that I would be very interested in that I wasn't. And then I got lucky enough to have a public relations internship. And it was very clear from that one internship that that was going to be the field for me. And was there something in particular that made you know that? Because often when I speak to entrepreneurs, even colleagues that I work beside, you get presented with many opportunities at times, but it's sometimes hard to make the right decisions and particularly hard to say no to certain things. What was it that made you sure that you were going down the right path or did you make mistakes along the way? Well, again, that first internship I had in the public relations field was very special and very odd in some ways, meaning it was a very, very small firm And it was a firm run by a woman who had only four employees, and she was pregnant at the time. So during my internship, she had her baby. So she gave me an extreme amount of responsibility for someone who was a college kid. And I was almost quasi helping her run the firm in addition to learning the craft of communication. And what I learned very quickly was I was much more capable than my age and stage, meaning communications came naturally to me. I had a creative mind that could craft words and expressions that were sticky and interesting to people. I could deal with clients very early on. And again, in terms of helping her run her business, I really was excited by getting involved with her finances and operations and I would deliver all of her paperwork and invoices and things to her hospital bed after she 
gave birth. And like, I just loved the pace of it. I loved the idea that I could be involved in the craft of communications while also being involved in the business of the business. So without even knowing it, that first internship gave me exposure, not just to the field I wanted to be in, but the pace and vibe and groove of running your own business. When did thinking about having your own business and running Prozec, which is a global PR and communications company today, when did that seed start to grow? Well, as I said, I graduated in a recession. I wanted to be in New York City working for a large public relations and communications firm. There were very, very few opportunities. And so I networked. I took a job not in my chosen field. I took a job in market research. It was in a suburb near where my parents lived because I had to move back in with them in Connecticut. And I started networking, and I ran into a gentleman who was head of communications at GE Capital, which was based out in Connecticut. And he had a business on the side. He was doing projects, and he and I hit it off, and he said to me, you know, one day I'm going to leave my corporate job, and I'm going to set up shop. And I said to him when we met, if you get serious, give me a call, which was a bit of a half-hearted interest because I really did want to be in New York City at a big firm with a training program and everything. But he called me a few months later and he said, I'm going to do this. Would you like to come and work with me? So I did. And everything about the position was not what I wanted. It was in a suburb. It was a tiny little office. We had terrible clients. You know, it was a startup. And at the time, a startup was not very sexy to me. I wanted to be working on big clients in a big city with all the star power around it. And instead, I was doing something opposite. So the opportunity to become an entrepreneur came a couple of years later when my original partner, then my boss, he knew I would move on. You know, once the market changed, he knew I would go and pursue my dream. And he said to me, look, I know we have a small little nothing of a firm, but how would you like to own half of the nothing little firm? And I really didn't understand at the time what ownership even was. My parents were both teachers. I did not come from a business background. I didn't understand equity, but I knew I had to say yes because I knew that was a very generous, odd thing for someone to do. And so that's how it started. But I can tell you I never intended to stay with it and grow it as my own firm, but the opportunity presented itself and that was the original opportunity. And you've mentioned many things there which make me think of resilience and I'm sure you get asked on a regular basis, when do you actually start your own business? When do you start being an entrepreneur? Is there a right time, a right place? And you're talking about it might have not been the right place initially for you and the recession was happening and we're hearing lots of things changing politically and globally today. Do you think there is a right time or a right moment or do you just have to, as I say, seize the moment? What's your advice? My advice is I read something very impactful by an author who wrote a book called Great by Choice. He's also the author of Built to Last, which are two very powerful best-selling business books. And the concept he had in one of them was called Luck Moments. And he said, basically, every human being, company, what have you, has the same set of luck moments. But the leaders or the companies that really shoot the lights out are the ones that can recognize when a good luck moment is happening and max it out. And they can also take a bad luck moment and turn it into a good luck moment. I would say that my bad luck moment was graduating in a recession, joining this gentleman, Dan Jacobs, my original partner, who in a crappy little office with terrible clients, it all looked like (laughs) a bad luck moment there, right? But I turned it into my good luck moment. And I was smart enough to know 
I didn't know it was my good luck moment when I started. But along the way, two or three years in, in fact, in the process of trying to leave this opportunity, I recognized the good luck moment and I decided to focus on it and max it out. So I think that concept of luck moments is so important. And I think the luck moments come along when they come along, the good ones and the bad ones. And I think the people with the resilience and the grit and the focus to either max out the good luck moment or turn around the bad luck moment are those people who become the best entrepreneurs or those companies that become the best companies. I just love that, Jen. I've just scribbled down luck moments. I'll remember that. That's fantastic. And you talked about moving into actual ownership, which I would imagine was quite emotional for you. What were the emotions that you went through thinking about you'll actually own a business? Well, again, my original partner said, I know you're going to leave. Why don't we shut down my business and open our business? And I think we both put in $10,000 or something like that to do that. And we were 50-50 partners. I did not understand at that moment what that opportunity really was. Like I said, it was in the process of leaving my own company or almost leaving that I understood it emotionally and professionally. So two or three years into it, when the market changed, I started interviewing at big firms in New York City and the job market was good again. And there was one very, very, very large global firm I interviewed with. And I was probably 24 or 25 at the time. And I don't know why, but I ended up in the CEO's office. They were probably like, who's this young woman with her own little firm? So the CEO closed the door and sat me down and said, you know, I'm about to retire. So I'm going to tell you what I would tell my daughter. And he said, you can have this job. Everyone here loves you. You can have the job. You kick ass at this job. But he said, what I think you should do is put your head down and grow your little firm into a big firm and sell it to a firm like ours one day. That's what I would tell you if you were my daughter. And that was the moment, you know, talk about good and bad luck moments. That was the moment I understood the opportunity that I had. I did not even understand that you could grow, you know, tiny little company like the one we had and sell it to anyone one day. Again, not coming from a business background, that concept was not really in my head until that moment. So I think that's when I got emotionally and professionally completely wrapped around the concept of just going back to my silly little firm, stop looking around, put my head down and focus. And thank goodness for that advice. Again, luck moments, that was probably one of the most important for me. And the gentleman's name was Jan Van Meter. And I always say, I'm going to look him up one day and send him a gift. <laughs> <laughs> and you're saying good luck moments. And I'm sure you get asked. I'm sure you are a mentor to many other people. And I'm sure due to that great advice you've had in the past, that moment in time, I'm sure many others, you offer your time to give guidance as you are no doubt on this conversation today. One of the things I hear a lot is how do I find a mentor who could help me? How have you gone about doing that? Or is it just through your natural networking and personality? Or is it something you specifically try to achieve? So my original partner was probably one of my only mentors because, again, he was many years my senior. He recognized, luckily, some special talent in me, and he gave me an opportunity that most people thought was crazy. So certainly he was a mentor. I would say in terms of mentors, they sort of came when they came, kind of like luck moments. I didn't seek them out. Like a lot of entrepreneurs, I've been, especially in those early years, I just had my head down focusing on what I knew was right and what I knew was possible. 
And I didn't really seek out the advice of others for many years until business got more complicated and I saw more complex things. But my mentors became people naturally who were around me and took an extra interest in what I was doing. So I wouldn't say I sought out mentors, but they naturally happened. And I have many clients who I consider my mentors in specific ways. But I'm actually kind of a bad person to ask about mentors because I really only had one significant mentor, and that was my original partner. And you mentioned there early stage, and you just had fantastic advice about growing the business from making it small into a large organization. And you just said something interesting there. You knew what was possible. How did you know what was possible? And was that a vision that you worked towards constantly or is it something that adapted and evolved over time? Well, I always say that it's like small moments that build into a big moment. And I guess I was excited that I could get up in the morning, have an idea and see it work or not work and commercialize it. And I saw in many little instances that I had the power to get up in the morning, have an idea and sell it to someone or get up in the morning, have an idea and have it embraced by someone. And that gave me this energy to do it again and do it again. And I think when you get into this cycle of building what Malcolm Gladwell calls the 10,000 hour rule, you know, you have to do 10,000 hours of something to be successful. I was very lucky that I got to do that really early. In my 20s, I was putting in my 10,000 hours early and having my own ideas experimenting with them, executing them, and some of them being successful, and some of them being failures, by the way. I was always incredibly comfortable with failure. Like, it was always fine with me to get up in the morning, have an idea, and see it not working, dust myself off, and then try another one. And I was excited by the ones that worked, and I could see the ones that worked adding up into a direction. So that's why I could always see the possibilities, and that sticks with me today, Pretty much every morning I wake up, I see a number of possibilities and I'm excited to go out and try them. And you know what? Some of them succeed and some of them fail, but thankfully more succeed than fail. And I don't get discouraged easily about those failures. So it's all those little micro successes that always fueled me to do the next one. And luckily, I had a few good ideas in the big picture and the big vision that ended up being right on. It sounds to me you very much support the idea that failure only really happens when you give up. And you see failure as almost a test mechanism to just enhance what's working well and make it work even better. Is that right? Absolutely. And I always say that, you know, for whatever reason, there are many bad things about American culture. But one of the good ones is that failure in the business world is generally embraced as a badge of honor, especially in the entrepreneurial community. I mean, every major entrepreneur especially in technology, it wears their 10 failures on their sleeve like it's a positive thing. I also think it was helpful in some ways that I didn't know what I didn't know, meaning I was in my 20s working for myself pretty much very early on. So I didn't have a lot of rules about the way I should behave or the way I should do things. I just kind of did them the way I should. And I think when you work in organizations for a long period of time, you establish those rules. And those rules tend to sometimes hold you back from understanding what is possible, right? So I didn't have that. I always say, you know, people are like, oh, you were so brave to start a business when you're young. And I said, no, I was lucky because I didn't have major responsibilities, major bills to pay, dependents. And I also just didn't know what I didn't know. And that was a positive thing because I went out <laughs> and just did what I thought was right. And it worked. And I think I was braver than I would have been 
having worked in an organization first because a lot of organizations, cultures like to tell you, no, that's not possible. A young person can't do that at that age or you can't do that or you need to behave this way. And I think I got lucky in some respects that I didn't adapt anyone else's rules. Now, on the flip side, I also didn't have a network and I didn't have contacts and I didn't have a lot of things that you would have if you started a business later in life. It would really intrigue me to hear your thoughts and views because Prozac has focused specifically around about the financial services globally. And that would be a very interesting time. You're talking about failure and need to change and learn from that. What have you seen when you've been engaging with large financial institutions globally, particularly over the last 10 years, when they themselves have tried to become more entrepreneurial in what is a heavily regulated environment and on the back of 2007 and 2008? How have you seen and how have you assisted organizations change the way they think and evolve? Well, one of the larger visions that we had early on was that it never made sense to me when we were trying to decide when we were very small business, where do we focus? Because we had all kinds of different clients. But it seemed strange to me that financial services firms weren't really great marketers for the most part. Now, there were a lot of reasons for that more than 10 years ago. But so few, unless they were retail-facing, were on the front foot with marketing or communications or reputation management. And I just thought that was strange. I thought one day these firms are not served in a world-class manner by great marketers and great communications professionals. So we actually decided to focus on financial services because it seemed like this underserved group of companies that one day would wake up and smell the marketing, right? And it took a long time for that to happen. But after the financial crisis, almost every organization understood, wow, we better manage our reputation. We better manage our story. We need to proactively market ourselves. If we don't tell our story, someone else is going to tell it for us. So there was this massive wake-up call after the financial crisis, which, by the way, most financial institutions had a black eye from the financial crisis. So all of a sudden, this explosion of need and interest in what we did came to the market. So that has really been a huge reason that ProSec has grown, is that financial institutions now behave very differently about their marketing, communications, and reputation management. And there were very, very few firms that were focused on that sector. So even today, I call financial institutions the emerging market of marketing because it's still an emerging market. There are still firms getting on the front foot with all of these things, which continues to be a benefit to us because we still have emerging markets. We don't just have mature ones. But certainly, financial services firms are behaving completely differently today with very sophisticated marketing, digital, public relations, and reputation management strategies. So the entire market has shifted in the last 10 years from an emerging market with relatively nascent capability to a market that really understands the power of reputation management, marketing, digital, and all the rest of it. And many large financial services industries recognize that that entrepreneurial spirit globally is accelerating on an annual basis and they're trying to find and think about ways and how they engage and interact with it in a better way. And at the same time, Jen, you'll see all the time 
fintech organisations starting up, challenger organisations with the data that they're utilising. Two questions probably. How does your organisation, Prozec, keep that entrepreneurial spirit to engage with them? And is there a particular part of financial services that Prozec prefer working with? Or do they all have their own interesting challenges? Well, we work across the financial ecosystem. So everything from retail banks and fintechs to hedge funds, private equity firms, and institutional asset managers. So we serve the entire ecosystem. And every niche in financial services has its own challenges, opportunities, stresses. So they're all different. We love them all. I would say one big area right now of significant growth is private market activity and private equity, right? Um, That is certainly where there's a lot of interest and activity. Those firms are doing enormously well. They have the capital to do a tremendous amount of deals, deal activity, and they have large, large portfolios of companies that have many, many, many needs. So they tend to be wonderful clients for firms like ours. But again, we're operating across the entire ecosystem, everything from crypto technologies to hedge funds, right? In terms of the entrepreneurial opportunity, I think it's interesting. We still have an enormous amount of entrepreneurial DNA here at ProSec. In fact, I call our culture the army of entrepreneurs. We actually teach everyone here to be as entrepreneurial as possible, to commercialize their own ideas to be incredibly experimental about entrepreneurial thinking. So I think we train and build people into entrepreneurs as much as we build them into great communications professionals. And that ethos probably comes right from my first two experiences in business. That internship I had where I had half of my job was the business of the business and half of my job was the craft of communications. And I loved that mix. And that mix is what we try to give people here. So there's a lot of entrepreneurial spirit at ProSec. And I think, interestingly enough, even though we're communications professionals and marketing professionals, our clients also path us to help them help their own people become more entrepreneurial. You probably know I published a book in 2011 called Army of Entrepreneurs. And that book is really about how do you get everyone in your organization to be more entrepreneurial? And most clients are really interested in that because they need innovation. They need to block disruption. They need to be doing all of those things too. So they are attracted to firms, obviously, that can help their people be more entrepreneurial. Do you think that links strongly to how you build your brand and reputation at the same time? Do you think that's linked to brand or indeed is it brand? Absolutely. Listen, I always say brands are defined by their differentiators, right? One of those can be a cultural one. For us, it's the Army of Entrepreneurs brand and that unique culture we have. But I would also say that entrepreneurial spirit is so important to great marketing and communications because you have to experiment in order to be really successful. You have to be, I'm sure you've heard the term agile marketing. You have to be trying and testing things, watching what succeeds and fails, and switching it up very quickly and putting your spend against things that are actually connecting with your audiences. So I think that same try and fail mentality, which is at the heart of being an entrepreneur, is at the heart of being a great marketer too. I mean, when you think about all the marketing and communications channels we have now, social media, traditional media, paid media, owned media, whatever it is, 
you have to be clever and entrepreneurial about trying all of those things and seeing what's really going to stick with your audience, right? Who knows? This podcast might connect with people in a totally different way than if I wrote an article. So I think, yes, I think that spirit is really important in the best marketer and communicators as well. And to show the brand of Prozac is continuing to grow and develop underneath your leadership and strategy, I'm assuming when you're attracting interns, you're looking as well as having the appropriate academic skills, it's more about attitude and aptitude and how they reflect what you're trying to achieve. And how do you gauge that when someone new and younger comes into your organization? Well, because we've been in business a long time, we've finally figured out on the recruiting side how to spot those people. There are many questions you could ask people to understand how excited are they about what they do, how passionate are they, what kind of evidence do you have that they've actually spent any time in their personal life thinking about their career. We have this in the Army of Entrepreneurs book, there's a chapter on recruiting, and we talk about something I call dirty jobs. I always ask about the dirty job because it's a grit question. Tell me about a dirty job you had as a kid, in high school, what have you. And again, we hire plenty of kids that didn't have a dirty job. But you hear the stories of the ones who did, and you know that they have resilience and grit, right? So you want people that show, of course, the academic and intellectual ability to do the job. But I'll always take the person that shows the grit and resilience first because that is the entrepreneurial spirit. We had a kid come in here the other day networking, not even looking necessarily for a job here, but just looking to get his dream job. And I listened to his story, which was an unbelievable story of grit as a kid. And he was trying to get a job. And I said to him, what do you want to do? He said, I want to be in credit card marketing. And I'm like, all right, well, that's specific. (laughs) I said, you probably shouldn't work here. You should work for a credit card marketer. He's like, I know. I'm networking to become a credit card marketer. I'm like, great. And first of all, he showed grit. He showed focus. He knew exactly what he wanted and exactly what to ask for. And through my network, we set him up with someone at American Express. And I'm like, this kid is dying to be a credit card marketer. And look what he's done to, like, get here. And he got the job because there's so few people who know what they want, work really hard to get it, and have a story of, like, what they were willing to do to get there. And that is very entrepreneurial behavior. It is a fantastic story. Being so specific as that is fantastic. made me laugh. I love the phrase dirty job. So that's two lucky moments in dirty jobs. Fantastic. On that point, you'll hear often people saying, Leadership's lost touch. Management don't really know what's going on. And does that phrase get back to the shop floor? How do you, Jen, stay in touch with the dirty jobs? How do you stay in touch with the grassroots and what's really going on in your organization? Yeah, well, we have a culture that's obsessed with people. We have a phrase here called custom careers at ProSec, which means we get to know every single person here and what turns them on and how to customize their job around them, which is a lot of work and focus. So we uniquely have all kinds of ways we stay connected with people. I also tend to believe, listen, I was a 24-year-old with a 45-year-old's capability. I know I'm not the only one. So I always want to know the incoming people here. I want to know the young people because I know I'm not the only one. I know there can be superstars in the midst, and I know what they're capable of. 
I think if they're given the runway and the support to do things that are well over their experience, a lot of them can do it. So I'm fairly obsessed with making sure I get to know them. Now, we have a 210-person organization now, so a lot harder to do. I rely on people in HR and my colleagues to help me spot people to get to know. But I do really try to get to know them, and we have many, many ways we do that. We have classes of what we call apprentices that come in in the summer, like 20 at a time. And we offer jobs to a lot of them. And, you know, after a few months, I just go to the managers and I say, okay, who's the superstar? Who do I need to get to know? And I literally have a breakfast twice a week with young people here because I want to know who they are. I want to know what they aspired to. And I get really great advice from them about how to keep running the firm right. Because to your point, I'm not seeing what I used to be able to see when we were 10 people. But I think leadership, if you're going to have a great culture and you're going to inspire entrepreneurial people and you're going to get those entrepreneurial people to work hard for you, you have to put in the time and get to know them and get to know how they tick and what they want out of their lives and careers. And by the way, it's a lot harder now. The newer generations won't stay in the job as long as the older generations did. So it's a lot of work, but the return is high and huge if you want to have a vibrant brand and culture into the future. And I would imagine there you're also encouraging a huge amount of autonomy. Are you seeing that as being really important to people coming through your organization, having that freedom? Yes. I give a speech to all of them when they come in about my story and how I was over my skis most of my career. Now I'm finally the age you should be to be doing my job. (laughs) But I was given the autonomy and the opportunity to run faster and further than most organizations. And that was magical for me. And I believe that if we spot the right people, that we should be gifting that to them as well so that they're not so over their skis that they don't know what they're doing, but they're over their skis enough that they're challenged and they're always given the opportunity to do something that perhaps in another firm they would say, oh, no, no, you can't do that. You're a junior person. We don't use those words because the reality is I know in this profession, the right entry-level person can be doing a job, again, that is five levels above them, and we need to allow them the autonomy, enough autonomy to show us what they can do. Great. And Jen, I'm really intrigued. We've talked a lot about what's happened in the past and where we are today with Prozec. What does the future hold? So when you think about your excitement builds, what does that future hold for you? That's always a good question because honestly, if you asked me to write down the firm I would have wanted in my dreams, the clients I would have wanted in my dreams, the level of talent I would have wanted in my dreams, it's this firm today. (laughs) So figuring out the future is difficult. I would answer it by saying I want to grow at the pace we can grow to keep this phenomenal entrepreneurial culture. That is keeping the culture is at the heart of the whole thing, scaling that culture over a larger firm and people. But I would say clearly we want to be the number one firm in the business-to-business financial services and technology sectors globally. That is what we want to be. I think we are on the path to being that. I don't know what size and scale that looks like. I know that there are markets, obviously in the U.S. market, we've pretty much achieved that. There are markets, we have places and spaces to go. So I would say I'm excited because, again, we are still mining some emerging markets. And we're also mining mature markets, so there's lots of opportunity. So I would just say, I think growth brings opportunity. I think it was Sheryl Sandberg that said in her book, 
but growth companies' careers take care of themselves. So I am a bit of a progress addict. I am a growth person. So the firm will grow. I just don't know at what pace. And we wanted to only grow it at the pace that we can scale the culture. Jen, that's been wonderful speaking to you from New York today. I love that last phrase, growth companies, careers take care of themselves. And I'm sure they have lots of lucky moments and some dirty jobs in there as well. Jen, thank you for your time today. It's been fantastic talking to you once again. Look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you. Take care. That's all for this edition of Julius Bear's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening, and please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and at juliusbear.com.